You know, King David in the Bible is known for many things. He's known as the writer of the Psalms. He's known as the little shepherd who had big faith in God and he defeated a giant named Goliath. He's known as the founder of the city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And he's known as the one who reigned over a golden age in Israel. But sadly and unfortunately, one of the things which David is most known for is a period in his life which was characterized by great moral failure. It began with an act of adultery, which we're going to read about here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the reason it's so sad is because despite all of his great achievements, despite all of his great endeavors of faith, this period of moral failure hangs like a dark cloud over the legacy of David's life. But what's interesting is that this great failure in David's personal life, it came right on the heels of great victory. In fact, it came on the heels of years and years of victory. And today what we're going to see is that this failure in David's life, it wasn't something that he just suddenly fell into, like, oops, on accident. It, It was something that was really the culmination of something which had been going on in his heart for a very long time. You know, G. Campbell Morgan, famous Bible teacher, he said this about this section we're looking at today. He said, in the whole of the New, or I'm sorry, in the whole of the Old Testament, There is no chapter more full of solemn and searching warning than this. In this section, what we're going to see is two attacks. In chapter 10, we're going to see an attack in chapter 11. Two attacks. One is physical in nature. The other is spiritual in nature. In one, we're going to see a great victory, one. In the other, we're going to see a great failure and a fall. You know, God's Word tells us that that there is in the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, there's a spiritual battle that's going on and that each of us face spiritual attack, much like the one that David faced in this story. And I believe that God has a word to speak to us this morning in regard to this area of victory and failure. I believe that God wants you to experience victory. God doesn't want you to be in bondage to things. He doesn't want you to be burdened down by addiction he doesn't want you to be locked up in the prison of your own bitterness he doesn't want you to be unnecessarily he doesn't want you to bring unnecessary hardship into your life strife tragedy he doesn't want you to bring those things into your own life unnecessarily or into the lives of other people around you he wants you to be free he wants you to be full of joy he wants you to walk in victory and God has given us the wisdom and the power to walk in that victory And so in this section, we're going to be looking at these two battles, and we're going to be looking at what were the attitudes and the actions which led to triumph, and what were the attitudes and actions which led to failure, and how how might we apply those things to our own lives. The title of today's message is The Anatomy of a Victory and a Failure. Let's begin by looking at the anatomy of a victory. We're going to start in chapter 10, but here's the first thing we're going to see. It begins with an act of kindness, an act of kindness. Verse 1, after this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So, uh... Here's the thing, verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? 
You know, last week we saw how David showed incredible kindness to a lame man named Mephibosheth. And in that story, we saw an incredible picture of God's love, God's kindness, God's grace towards us. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 10 now, we see that David extended kindness not only to those of the people of Israel, but also beyond the borders of the nation of Israel. He's trying to extend a hand of friendship to this king of the Ammonites whose father passed away. And he's basically saying, you know, we might have had our differences, our conflicts in the past, but I'm truly sorry that you lost your father and I want to show you kindness during this difficult time. So he sends him these emissaries, right, these ambassadors, these representatives, and they go and they're there to bring comfort, condolence, and congratulations to the new king. But even though David's heart was in the right place, what we see is that his kindness was not well received. It was questioned. It was received with a sense of skepticism and cynicism. I wonder if any of you have ever had that happen to you before, where, where you've had maybe a strained relationship. Maybe you realized that the way that you had been treating someone wasn't loving or Christ-like, and you wanted to change that. And so you reached out to that person. You extended a, a hand of friendship or an olive branch, but they didn't receive that kindness as you hoped that they would or imagined that they would. Instead, instead of seeing your gratitude as a genuine way of extending a hand of friendship, they were skeptical and cynical about what your true motives were behind that, assuming that probably you had some kind of ulterior motive. I think this happens a lot in marriages. You know, one spouse will realize that they've been messing up, they haven't been doing things right, and so they'll try to change, but their attempts to change are met with skepticism and cynicism on the part of their spouse. The spouse will say, well, why are you acting like this now? You haven't been acting like this for years. What, were you trying to butter me up for something? There must be some kind of ulterior motive. Now that's what happens to David here. He's not, uh, he, he's actually trying to do something nice, but the Ammonites assume that he has an ulterior motive. Let me say this. God's word encourages us against this kind of cynicism. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, that famous chapter on love, it says that love keeps no account of wrongs. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And what that means is that the way of love, the way of Christ is to assume and hope for and believe in the best in people. To live in that hope that God is working on them. God is redeeming them and he's bringing about change in their lives and giving people the chance to change without cynically assuming the worst about them. Now, someone might say to that, you know, hey, well, doesn't the Bible teach that people are sinful by nature, that people's default mode is to be self-serving and self-preserving? Well, yes, you know, the Bible teaches that there is more sin, there is more wickedness in your heart, in my heart, than you or I even know. But the message of the gospel is that in spite of that, in spite of our sin, God loves you more than you could ever dare to dream. He loves you so much. He wants a relationship with you so much that he gave up everything, all of himself, for you in order to repair that broken relationship so that you could be saved, so that you could be redeemed. And the call of Jesus Christ is for us to love like he has loved us. You know, if you keep a record of wrongs, whether it's in your marriage or it's in relationships that you have, uh, if you keep a record of the wrongs committed against you, if you become like a porcupine, you know what I'm saying, like always on guard uh, all the time, if you live with a cynical heart and a skepticism towards other people's, uh, guess who loses? You do. You lose every time. 
That's exactly what's going to happen to the Ammonites here. Because of their cynicism, because of their skepticism about uh, David's motives, they're going to miss out on a blessing, and they're going to miss out on a relationship, and they're just going to cause more strife. Let's see what happens in verse 4. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments at the middle, at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told David, he went to meet them, and uh, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. The second thing we see in this anatomy of this victory is we see a concern for dignity. There's a concern for dignity. Now thinking about these emissaries, uh, assuming that they're actually spies, right? The king of the Ammonites humiliates them and sends them home. He cut off half their beards. That doesn't mean that he trimmed their beards shorter. What it means is that he shaved half their faces, right? Which is, you know, very unflattering. Uh, not only that, but it says that he cut their garments off at their hips, which created some very uh, unflattering and very revealing miniskirts for these men to wear home. This would be kind of the equivalent today of stealing somebody's pants and then making them walk home, right? Uh, this would be a slap in the face to these men, but also would be a slap in the face to David who sent these men. But notice what David does. He has a concern for these men's dignity. He tells them, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, until you look better, you know. And he goes out there to see them, and he gets them some new clothes to wear. And, you know, I think about this, and I think, what would a lot of politicians do in a case like this? I think they would exploit a situation like this for their own political gain, right? You can imagine parading these men through Jerusalem, throughout Israel, to show the people just what the king of the Ammonites did to us, to get them really angry, and to get them on David's side. But no, David didn't do that. He showed concern for the dignity of these people. You know, the Bible teaches us that God created us as human beings in his image. Out of all of creation, we alone have been created as image bearers of God. And for that reason, we have dignity. That is the basis for understanding human dignity. That we are created in the image of God, that we bear the image of God. And what that means and what that doctrine leads us to conclude is that every person, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of physical ability or disability, has value. And their dignity is not found in what they can do or what they can produce, but in the fact that they are created in the image of God, that they bear His image. And that's really important because that leads to a lot of things that we as Christians hold to be very important. For example, it's why we as Christians believe in the sanctity of life. It's why we believe that all people are created equal before God. It's why we oppose any practice or attitude which takes away from human dignity. But let's uh, continue reading in verse 6, still on this point of dignity. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Mach with 1,000 men, and the king of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. You know, the Ammonites knew that what they had done by humiliating this royal delegation from Israel, not only was it insulting, but it, was, it could be considered an act of aggression. This could be considered an act of provocation to war. And so what they do is they go out and they get a bunch of mercenaries, which paid soldiers from Syria, and they, they try to get as big of an army as they can together, and they decide, 
we're not going to wait to see if Israel attacks us. We're going to go and we're going to strike them first. We're going to have the first uh, punch. And so when Israel sees what the Ammonites are doing, that this big army is amassing to attack them, it says that David sent out Joab and the army of the mighty men. I love that, the army of the mighty men. Do you remember who these guys are? We've studied through 1 Samuel earlier this year. Do you remember these guys? We first met them back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. At the time, David was on the run from Saul. He's living in a cave, uh, the cave of Adullam. He's homeless. He's alone. He's by himself. It's really a low point in his life. But as David was there in that cave, men started coming out to him, kind of like refugees, you know, from, from the different areas, people whose lives had no direction. They were a mess. They started coming out to David and asking, hey, can we live with you here in the caves? And David took in this band of outcasts, this kind of losers really and he became their captain and these men who came out to David this is what we read in first Samuel 22 about the the caliber of men that we're talking about here everyone who was in distress everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter of soul that's their qualifications that's their caliber these were not the kind of people that David had hoped would surround him and come around him and stand alongside him these were not mighty men of God these guys were basically losers right the outcasts of society but David became their captain and as such he spent time with them they lived together David shared his heart for the Lord with these men and he led them and he taught them and these 400 losers I want you to see now who they've become they've become known as David's mighty men of valor we read about them here in 2 Samuel, also in the book of 1 Chronicles. And there's something about that title, Mighty Men of Valor, that stirs up something in my soul. I don't know about you. These men were with David in his exile. They lived with him in the caves. They would go out on missions to do valiant deeds, like rescue villages who were under attack from thieves and marauders. They would go and they would rescue them. And these mighty men, they became famous for their courage and their skill. But even beyond that, we also read in 1 Chronicles that these were men who were filled with the Spirit of God. This band of David's mighty men, they become essentially like an elite fighting force within Israel's army. These guys are the Green Berets. These are the Navy SEALs of their day. And th here's, here's some uh, examples of these men. Uh, in 2 Samuel 23, we read about this guy. His name is Adino the Esnite. And he's famous for defeating 800 men all by himself. Like if, uh, if any of you guys like kung fu movies, I got to tell you, this is probably better. When you get to heaven, you're going to have to go to the, uh, the touch screen video archive and pull this one up because it'll blow you away. It's better than uh, Jackie Chan any day and it's real, right? So then we read about in 1 Chronicles, there's this guy named Joshua Beam. He defeated 300 men by himself with a stick, right? Now that's, that's, that's awesome, right? And here's maybe my favorite. There's this guy named Benaiah, also in 1 Chronicles 11. And this guy killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, right? Like you just add into it. I think I'll take on the lion when it snows just for fun, just to make it a little harder, right? right the, men, the mighty men of valor, that's who they became. But you need to know this. That's not who they started out as. They started out as people who had no direction in their lives. Their lives were a mess. And David took these men under his wing and he made them into mighty men of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of life I want to live. As God is working in my life, I want to be used by God in the lives of other people to make them into mighty men and women of God. 
Let's see what happens in verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, uh, both front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And check this out, verse 12. Be, but be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. This is the third thing we see in this anatomy of the victory. We see an awareness of identity and calling. There's an awareness of identity and calling. When we read this, he says the battle was against them from the front and the rear. You know what that means? That means they're surrounded. But notice what Joab says in verse 12. He, not for a moment does he think, we should just give up. We're surrounded. We're outnumbered. No, he doesn't say we should give up. What does he say? He said, let's be of good courage and let's be courageous for our people. Let's be courageous for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. There's this awareness of the will of God. There's this awareness that God's with them. There's this awareness of their identity as the people of God and their calling as the people of God. They understood that God had called them as a nation God had a mission and a calling on their lives. It was through them that God is going to bring salvation to the world. It's, there's this promise that's been given, and they know it, to Abraham, to Moses, that through these people in this land, there's going to come salvation for the world. There's going to come a Redeemer. There's going to come a Messiah. So they can't just give up. They can't just give in. They can't just let anybody take that away from them. They've got an identity. They've got a calling, and therefore they need to stand up and fight. The next thing we see after a sense of identity and calling, we see that there was courageous and selfless action. In verse 13, we read that the mighty men go out to battle and these mercenaries, uh, they drive them out, right? The mercenaries flee, they retreat. And then when the Ammonites see that the mercenaries from Syria have run away, the Ammonites run away as well. But we see in verse 15 that they retreat to the land of Hadadezer. We saw him last week. And Hadadezer goes and he gets even more mercenaries and they try to, you know, regroup and attack Israel again. But there at the end of the chapter you'll see that David then comes with the full army of Israel and they drive back these attacking armies, they defend Israel, and they win a decisive victory. All these soldiers, they won this battle, how? Through courageous and selfless action. They put their lives on the line, they put themselves out there. The first battle we see in this story was an actual physical battle. But it's worth noting the anatomy of that victory, especially in light of what is going to happen next. After seeing the anatomy of a victory, turn with me to chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at the anatomy of a failure. And it begins with this. First of all, we see a vulnerable situation. A vulnerable situation. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You know, after such a great victory in this battle against the Ammonites and this army of Syrian mercenaries, David decides he's going to sit this one out, right? So in the spring of the year, and isn't it interesting, it says, at the time when kings go out to battle, David sends Joab and his servants, which is a reference to the mighty men. David sends Joab and the mighty men out to battle along with the whole army of Israel, but David stays home. Now think about what this means. 
all the men are away at battle so who's left in Jerusalem well there's David and then there's a whole bunch of ladies who are there without their husbands now that doesn't sound like a very good situation does it the other thing is this all the men are away and David guess what that means for him it means that he's lacking accountability doesn't it now think about it. this is not a good situation he's surrounded by temptation and he's lacking accountability now think about that in your own life don't put yourself in that kind of situation you know David should not be here right now it tells us his place is out in the battle with the men of Israel you know isn't it interesting that David's mighty men the ones he taught and trained they're out in the battle but David's here at home David taught them to be valiant and courageous men of God but here he is and he's not doing the very thing which he taught and trained them to do David shouldn't be here right now he shouldn't be here this is the time of the year when kings go out to battle and he's a king right he should be out at the battle with his men but instead he's sitting this one out he's taking it easy he's taking naps in the middle of the day we're gonna see and his thinking is you know man I've been fighting for so long I've been in the battle for so many years don't I deserve to just take my foot off the gas a little bit don't I deserve to just coast for a while you gotta say what are you doing David what are you doing you shouldn't be here right now this is just unwise this is vulnerable situation and of course we know that this is the scenario in which David is gonna end up committing adultery with Bathsheba and of course that's just gonna blow up so many other things just have so much fallout men ladies let me tell you this God's Word says can a person take fire in their lap and not get burned right isn't it interesting have you noticed this if you're doing what you should be doing then you simply don't have time to be doing what you shouldn't be doing you ever notice that if you're doing what you should be doing then you don't have time to be doing what you shouldn't be doing if David would have been doing what he should have been doing which was as king as a man of Israel he was out in the battle where he should have been he wouldn't have been in this situation in the first place you know a lot of people assume especially I'll just talk about adultery for a second a lot of people assume that adultery is really a men's issue right like this is a temptation that mostly affects men some that men fall into but let me tell you this adultery is certainly not a men's issue in my own experience I've been a pastor for 10 years now I just realized that yesterday I've been a pastor for 10 years now and you're like when did he get ordained was he like five years old you know no I, I but no, but I, I have been a pastor for 10 years, and I would say this, in my own uh, experience, personally, I have seen more cases in which it is the wife who commits adultery than the man. Now, I'm just saying that's my experience. I don't know about other people. But I have to tell you, this is not just an issue for men. I think the reasons why women get involved in adulterous relationships tend to be different than the reasons men do. But this is not just a, a guy's thing that guys need to watch out for. But this isn't really just about the sin of adultery that I want to talk about this morning. I, I think we should talk about that, but I think this is also about realizing the fact that there's a spiritual attack that we all face, and it takes different forms, different kinds of temptations. We face them, though, and there is an enemy who wants you to fail, and he is attacking you. And here in this story, here, check this out. The men of Israel are away, and they're sieging the city of Rabbah, but at the same time, David is at home and Satan is laying siege to the heart of David. And what's sad 
is that David is going to fall before the city of the Ammonites does. God's, God tells us in his word that we should be aware, that we should be knowledgeable of the schemes and the devices that Satan uses to attack us so that we can act wisely, so that we can respond, so that we can not put ourselves in vulnerable situations. You know, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What that means is this, if you are walking in the Spirit, if you're walking in step with the Spirit of God, following the Spirit's leading, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Why not? Because you're so busy walking in the Spirit. I, I put it this way. Christianity is not so much about cautiously avoiding sin as it is about courageously doing the will of God. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Christianity is not so much about cautiously avoiding sin as it is about courageously doing the will of God. If you're courageously doing the will of God, you will naturally not be in situations and temptations which, uh, which like David did, where he made himself vulnerable. Staying at home like this, all the husbands away, no accountability. It was just unwise. Don't put yourself in vulnerable situations where temptation is abundant and where accountability is lacking. It's just unwise. However, this brings us to our second point, which is an issue of the heart. It would be far too simplistic. In fact, it would even be naive for us to think that the only factor in David's sin was just the, the situation that he found himself in, right? It, it wasn't just that David was in the wrong time and the wrong place. There was a deeper issue going on here. There was an issue of the heart. Jesus said this, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's what Jesus said. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that it's not what goes into your body that makes you unclean. It's the fact that we have a, a deep-rooted, fundamental problem in our hearts. There's wickedness bound up in our hearts. Everyone faces temptation, but when a, when a person gives in to temptation, it's never just an issue of them being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's ultimately always an issue of the heart. Now, what was going on in David's heart? I'll tell you this. Many years before this, over a decade before this, David began this pattern of disregarding God's plan for marriage. Well, when did he do that? Well, here in 2 Samuel, we have read that David, after he became king, after he got some money and some, some power, he started marrying a lot of women, like a whole lot of women. Like at this point, he has at least six, maybe seven wives. Uh, and that was common practice in that day, but it was something which God had strictly forbidden in the law of Moses. And David knew that. He showed, though, disregard for God's plan for marriage. You see, David, by taking all these wives, by just marrying woman after woman, you know what that speaks of in his life? Two things which are really important for us to consider for ourselves. What, what does it speak of? Number one, it speaks of there was a lack of romantic restraint. There was a lack of restraint in this area of romance. And secondly, it speaks of an indulgence of his passions. For years now, anytime David saw a pretty girl who was available, he didn't restrain himself. He indulged his passions. He would just marry her so that he could sleep with her. But now he's got, got to see this woman. He's going to see this woman who's not available. 
and he's in a vulnerable situation that he's put himself in and it's going to just provide the perfect opportunity for this long-standing lack of self-control and this tendency to indulge himself to manifest itself you know the proverbs say this a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls maybe there's nobody in your life right now with whom you're tempted to get into an inappropriate relationship probably that's most of you you'd say you know there's re that's really not a situation I'm facing right now maybe for some of you it is but maybe you say it's not something I'm dealing with right now well let me tell you this if there is a lack of self-control in your life if there if there's a tendency to continually just indulge whatever passions you have you are setting yourselves up for a fall because when that situation does present itself you will be like a city with no walls no way to protect itself from attack you know chances are statistically that most of us here at some point in our lives you will find yourselves romantically interested in somebody who is not your spouse and when that happens you know what you have to do you have to practice restraint you have to tell yourself no right if you've gotten yourself into the habit though of not practicing restraint and just indulging your passions then you're less likely to have victory when that time comes and you know the the thing is that God has an arena in which you don't have to practice restraint he has an arena in which you can indulge your passions it's called marriage but outside of marriage we're called to practice restraint and not indulge our passions because marriage was created by God to be a divine picture of his love and faithfulness to his people I'll say this the strength of a temptation is not in how alluring the object is the strength of a temptation is found in the condition of your heart you know that think about this David and Joseph remember Joseph from the Old Testament he faced a similar temptation a woman who wanted him to commit adultery with her but yet Joseph restrained himself Joseph said no whereas David says yes and David fails which one do you think faced a greater more intense temptation well, I'd have to say it was Joseph I mean that woman was right there grabbing him David I mean he's just seeing this woman he doesn't know who she is she's way far away he has way more of an easier time stepping away from this you see the strength of a temptation is not in how alluring the object is the strength of a temptation is found in the condition of your heart you see it's not just about circumstances it's much more it's about the condition of your heart what we need more than anything is a new heart and the promise of the gospel is exactly that that in Christ you can become a new person that God will give you a new heart a heart that's renewed day by day and the way to receive that new heart is to give your heart to him the third thing we see in this anatomy of a failure we see entertaining temptation the act of entertaining the temptation verse 2 it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is this not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite we see here David wakes up from this nap he goes out on his balcony and I, I tend to read this as you know he he is not out there looking for it but he kind of catches this glimpse of this woman uh, rather but here's the deal rather than taking his eyes off of her he fixes his attention on her 
And not only that, he tries to find out more information about her. You know, all of us face temptation. The issue here is that David entertained that temptation. He could have just ended this whole thing right away by going back inside, doing something else. But he entertained the temptation. You see, it's one thing to stumble upon something by accident. That happens to all of us. But it's another thing to entertain a temptation, to ponder it, to let your eyes rest upon it, to let your thoughts dwell upon it and just kind of wander freely with no restraint about that thing. David entered this temptation, and this, or he entertained it, and that was a major factor in his failure. David found out who this woman was. It says that she's the daughter of Eliam. Now, who's Eliam? Eliam is one of David's mighty men. Do you know that? He's a friend. He's a man who lived in the caves with David, who put his life on the line for David countless times. And if, he's, if she's the daughter of Eliam, that means she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who is one of David's advisors, a member of his own staff. And she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, another one of David's mighty men. This is a man who is out in the field of battle, fighting on David's behalf at this moment. You know, you would think that this information would have deterred David from doing this thing. But instead, you know what it says to David? This is a golden opportunity. I can get away with this. You know, things would have never even gotten to this point had David simply walked away when he saw the woman, but instead he entertained it. He kept entertaining it, and now here he is plotting and planning and thinking about how he can carry it out and get away with it. You know, the pleasures of sin obscure your vision, just like the bait obscures the hook. You know, that the fish sees the bait and they think, wow, that's a nice looking bait. I can get away with this. But you say, don't do it, man. Don't do it. There's a hook inside. Can't you see the hook inside there? Don't let your eyes fix on it. Don't think about it. Don't even entertain that thought. Don't let your mind wander about how good it would taste. Don't even entertain it. There's a hook in there. And fourthly, lastly, we see the last part of this anatomy is their selfish action. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. David had committed adultery in his heart up on the roof, but now he commits adultery in practice. Now make no doubt about it, sinning in practice is far worse than sinning in your heart. Some people would say, well, I've already sinned in my heart, then I guess I might as well just go ahead and do it in practice because I've already sinned. I'm already there, right? No way. Sinning in practice is far worse than sinning in your heart. I mean, quantitatively before God, yeah, it's all the same. If you've sinned in your heart, though, repent of it and let God forgive you, but don't go any further because the destruction of sin in practice is so much greater than the destruction of sin in your heart. You know, this was an incredibly selfish action on David's part. Now, let me tell you this. That's what sin always is. It's an incredibly selfish action. David took advantage of this woman you know, I don't even think we should talk about, oh, you know, well, was she interested, that, blah, blah, blah. No. This is a man in a position of power. He's abusing his power. He's abusing his authority. He's having this woman brought to him and, and coercing her to sleep with him. In our next study, uh, next week, we're going to look at the fallout from this action. But let me tell you this. The cost is going to be so high. Much higher than David would have ever imagined. 
It won't just be David who's going to end up paying the price for this, but many innocent people who are going to suffer because of what David did. And all for what? For what? So that David could have a few moments of pleasure and then a lifetime of regret? Was it worth it? No way. Looking back on this later in life, would David have wished that he had never done this? Absolutely. He wasn't thinking. All he could see the bait. He wasn't thinking about the hook that was in there. You know, sin is selfish. You know why God tells you not to sin? Is it just because he's like a mean old God who doesn't want you to have any fun out there? Not at all. It's because he loves you and he knows that sin will ruin your life and it will ruin the lives of so many people around you. God loves you enough to tell you, don't do it. You know, if you want to know how serious sin is, you got to look no further than the cross. Sin is so serious that God had to die, right? That's pretty serious. It's not something to play around with. Even though Jesus paid the price for your sin, even though God will forgive you, there will always be repercussions. You never just get away with it. David will repent. God will forgive him. But this mess is still going to be there. You never just get away with it. There's always a hook under the bait. But here's one last thing I want to bring to your attention. Look at the anatomy of the victory compared to the anatomy of the failure. We have an act of kindness versus an act of foolishness. It was foolish for David to stay home. Secondly, we have a concern for the dignity of others versus what? A complete lack of concern for the dignity of another. David indulged himself at the expense of this woman and her dignity. The next thing we see is an awareness of identity and calling versus what? A disregard for identity and calling. And then lastly, we see courageous and selfless action versus cowardly and selfish action. You know, one of the most tragic aspects of David's failure with Bathsheba and all the fallout that comes as a result of it, here's one of the most tragic aspects. It was completely avoidable. You know that? It was avoidable. It didn't have to go down like this. And it doesn't have to go down like this in your life. When you face spiritual attack, God wants you to have victory. And in his word, he has given us the wisdom that we need to avoid putting ourselves in vulnerable situations. And in Jesus Christ, he has given you the power and the strength to say no to sin and say yes to God. Now, may we take this story as a solemn warning. And may we come to the Lord this morning and receive and take hold of the promise of the gospel that through Jesus Christ, through his finished work on the cross, we can be redeemed, we can be made new, we can receive new hearts, and we can walk in his strength and in his victory. Amen?